Let's read 1 Samuel chapter 30, beginning at verse 1. Now it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziklag, attacked Ziklag and burned it with fire, and had taken captive the women and those who were there from small to great. They did not kill anyone, but carried them away and went their way. So David and his men came to the city, and there it was, burned with fire, and their wives, their sons, and their daughters had been taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him lifted up their voices and wept until they had no more power to weep. And David's two wives, Ahinoam, the Jezreelites, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite, had been taken captive. Now David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because, of the, because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Then David said to Abiathar the priest, Ahimelech's son, Please bring the ephod here to me. And Abiathar brought the ephod to David. So David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue this troop? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake them, and without fail recover all. So David went, he and the six hundred men who were with him, and they came to the brook Basor, where they saw those who were left behind. Where, where those stayed who were left behind, sorry. But David pursued he and 400 men, for 200 stayed behind, who were so weary they could not cross the brook Basor. Then they found an Egyptian in the field and brought him to David, and they gave him bread and he ate, and they let him drink water. And they gave him a piece of cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. So when he had eaten, his strength came back to him, for he had eaten no bread nor drunk water for three days and three nights. Then David said to him, To whom do you belong? And where are you from? And he said, I am a young man from Egypt, servant of an Am Am Amalekite. My, and my master left me behind because three days ago I fell sick. We made an invasion of the southern area of the Cherethites in the territory which belongs to Judah and of the southern area of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, Can you take me down to this troop? So he said, Swear to me by God that you will neither kill me nor deliver me into the hand of, hands of my master, and I will take you down to this troop. And when he had brought him down, there they were spread out over the, ground, over the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of the great spoil which they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David attacked them from, the twi from twilight until evening of the next day. Not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who rode on camels and fled. So David recovered all that the Amalekites had carried away, and David rescued his two wives. And nothing of theirs was lacking, either small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything which they had taken from them. David recovered all. Then David took all the flocks and herds that they had driven before them, those other livestock, and said, This is David's spoil. Now David came to the 200 men who had been so weary that they could not follow David, whom they also made to stay at the brook of Basor. So they went out to meet David, and to meet him, and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless men of those who went with David answered and said, 
Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except for every man's wife and children, that they may lead them away and depart. But David said, My brethren, you shall not do so with what the Lord has given to us, who has preserved us and delivered into our hand what the troop of uh, the troop that came against us. For who will heed you in this matter? But as is his part as his part is who goes down to the battle, so shall his part be who stays by the supplies. They shall share alike. So it was from that day forward he made it a statute and an ordinance for Israel to this day. Now when David came to Ziklag, he sent some of the spoils to the elders of Judah, to his friends, saying, Here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord, to those who were in Bethel, those who were in Ramoth of the south, those who were in Jotir, those who were in Aroah, those who were in Sifmoth, those who were in Eshtemoah, those who were in Rachel, those who were in the cities of the Jeremilites, those who were in the cities of the Kenites, those who were in Hormah, those who were in Choroshan, those who were in Athak, and those who were in Hebron, and to all the places where David himself and his men were accustomed to rove. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord God, as we come to look at your word now together, as we come to study it now, we pray that you would truly work within our hearts and within our minds. May we not try to understand this based on our own knowledge, based on those things that we glean from this on our own, but may we be reliant upon you for wisdom. Grant us this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you're like me, you get to the end there and you start getting lost in a whole heap of names in that chapter that we just read. You're like me, you look at this and you see a whole heap of events that took place a long time ago and the spiritual truths of this passage may not seem perhaps quite as striking as what we saw last week in chapter 29 of 1 Samuel. However, what we see in this chapter is a wonderful turning point for Israel, particularly for David. What we see in this chapter is God mending the broken. Things in chapter 30 of 1 Samuel begin to turn around for the good in incredibly tangible ways. Last week we see God doing wonderful things. Last week we see God delivering David. Last week we see God silently at work. And this week we see how that has had an impact upon David. So as brief as it was, chapter last 29 just is God opening the door to what we see today. Now that doesn't mean that everything we read here today is rosy. There are some tricky things within this narrative. There are hard-hearted, wicked, evil men who respond very ungraciously. There's been a lot of trials through 1 Samuel up till now. And we begin to look more optimistically at what the future could hold for Israel under David's leadership. Yes, there are less than rosy things. There are, there are consequences of sin, even for the believer. There are disgruntled people. But in all of that messiness, we see David's heart of repentance and God's amazing blessings continuing to be poured out upon his people, Israel, which is something we take comfort in as well. 
So we begin this morning with our first point, uh, looking at an unhappy return. Now I have returned to points this morning, which doesn't mean the last two weeks were pointless sermons, but we've got three points this morning. The first point is an unhappy return. Now it, it might sound a little bit unusual to talk as I just have about God's amazing blessings in this chapter, when you go to the start of chapter 30 and you see it open up the way that it does. You've got David having been told in chapter 29 to nick off by the Philistine commanders his return to the city Ziklag that he's been given. Now you might remember that is one of the towns that Israel were meant to, to conquest under Joshua, but there are a few places they didn't go to. They weren't quite fervent enough in their obedience to God to take all these places. God's been good giving it to David. So David returns to, to Ziklag. David with his 600 men having marched a fairly decent distance. We're told that it's about a three-day march they've gone on to get home. And they haven't eaten or drunk for that time. David and his 600 men are getting closer to home. They're getting closer to the place where they should feel, they should feel safe. Perhaps the, there's an overabundance of joy in the men. That they've been relieved of the, uh, the need that they previously had because of bad mistakes to fight against Israel. They were spared from that. They're going home. They're going home and they come home to destruction. They should feel safe here. They've marched hard for three days and they come home to find the Amalekites having come through in their absence. The Amalekites had taken their wives, their sons, their daughters, their livestock and had burned what they could of Ziklag. Whatever relief that the Israelites would have felt upon having been spared from fighting their, their countrymen would have quickly been overcome by exhaustion and despair as we see here. We see David and his men from verse 3 come home and David and his men in verse 4, they, they, they lift up their voices and they wept until they had no more power to weep. This is a scene of utter heartbreak. This is a scene of complete loss. This is a scene of complete brokenness. And if things aren't bad enough just there, well, it tells us that every man's wife was stolen by the Amalekites. The author reminds us again that even with David, things aren't perfect because David's two wives have been taken. This scene would have been absolutely gut-wrenching for David's men coming home. Imagine being away from home for a period of time. You drive home after a, a long day at work. Perhaps you've been away for a conference. You turn into your driveway and everything is ash. Everything is gone. This is what the men faced. And what do we do in times of crisis? We look for the source, don't we? We look for someone or something to blame. We look for someone or something to take responsibility and accountability for what has just happened. 
Now we know that the Amalekites had come through and done this, but for David's men who were with him, that's a distant threat at this point in time. Someone has to take the blame right now. Verse 6, some of David's men wanted to stone him to death. We see heartbreak, we see despair, we see murderous intent coming out here, and David was greatly distressed because of this. We open up on chapter 30 of 1 Samuel with absolute rock bottom. David's not in Israel anymore. Yes, by his choice, but he's not in Israel anymore. He's living behind enemy lines in, uh, in, in this uh, area belonging to the Philistines, and even that will be away from him and his men who have been faithful up to now want to kill him we open up in 1 Samuel chapter 30 to absolute rock bottom and in many ways this brings to mind the events of chapter 28 doesn't it where, where Saul went after seeing the massive Philistine army he went and saw the medium and he too reached the point of rock bottom it's not a coincidence that both Saul and David reached the lowest of lows in these chapters surrounding each other. Saul hit rock bottom in chapter 28. David hits rock bottom here. But this is where some of the biggest differences, one of the biggest differences between David and Saul emerges. You read the first part of verse 6. There is no hope. Things are bad. But then you read the end of verse 6. David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. When Saul hit rock bottom, he did not strengthen himself in the Lord his God. When David hits rock bottom, this man of God who, yes, has made some terrible mistakes, he strengthens himself in the Lord his God. And what this actually does in the Hebrew is an incredibly beautiful thing. Now, this is going to sound really nerdy, but I'm going to share it anyway. I was of two minds as to whether I would or not, but I'm going to share it. In Hebrew, there are seven different types of verb. Some of them are active, some of them where the, uh, the person in the sentence goes and does something, and some of them are passive where an action is reflected onto that person. So it's the difference between someone hitting the ball and someone being hit by the ball. David strengthening, the strengthening here, is in Hebrew what's called a hit payer, which probably doesn't mean a whole heap to you. And it's more in that middle ground area where context determines whether it's active or passive. And this is where we see God's grace in this narrative. Now, that's a one-sentence explanation of about a paragraph and even an introductory Hebrew grammar textbook. So it's not, probably not doing full justice to this. But what this means, David had nothing. David had marched with his men for three days. David had not eaten. David had not drunk for that time. He was exhausted. There was no means by which David could strengthen himself. His strength here comes from God. He is strengthened in the Lord by God's grace, giving him that strength. We have to understand that's how David continues in this passage. Only by God strengthening him. That's why sometimes, as much as I despise grammar at times, it's actually beautiful to see these things, see these depth of, this depth of God's word. Now, we could argue that if David had, had never left Israel, 
this sort of thing wouldn't have happened because he would have had countrymen around to protect his family and his city while he went away and raided at different times. We've seen God's blessing to David in giving him the city of Ziklag, meaning that he and his men don't have to live in other Philistine cities where they're exposed all the time to pagan rituals and expressions of false belief. Yet there is still an isolation in Ziklag. An isolation has left them exposed to this. Despite that, despite David's mistakes, when David turned to the Lord, the Lord was with him. The Lord had not left him. The Lord strengthened him. God is still with David. He is blessing David. He is guiding David. He is strengthening David right now. David, again, three days without food or drink, and God strengthens him, not just spiritually, not just physically rather, but spiritually and emotionally. Emotionally, so he can continue. And where we've had question marks about what's going on in David's heart for a few chapters now, spiritually, we see a renewed vitality in David. The men are trying to kill me, we see in verse 6. What does he do in verse 7? He gets the priest and he inquires of God. There is a renewed vitality in David. He has been at the absolute lowest of low. And in that absolute pit, presumably one there was significant despair, God brings him out. God strengthens him. He goes to a bath of the priests and he, he seeks God's counsel. He asks God, should I chase these guys? Should I chase the Amalekites? And God's answer, yes. Chase them. You will overtake them. You will get back everything. Now that's a big promise. You will get back everything. We see here in this unhappy return, in the brokenness of David, God's goodness shining through, God's grace shining through. Perhaps you've reached those points in your life yourself, those points where it feels as if there's no hope, those points where taking one more step just seems too hard. We don't have the strength ourselves. But God has given us the strength. What David goes through here is something that many of us are very familiar with, something many of us can also thank God for, that he has not left us in sin. He has not left us in our bad mistakes. And as we saw last week, he does provide an escape as we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, when we attempted. So things, despite the horror of those first few verses, begin to turn around, even in the midst of that. So we come to our second point where we see the chase. David's been told, chase after them. You'll catch them, you'll overtake them, you'll get everything back. As we move into this point, picking up at verse 9, David gets his 600 tired, some of them grumpy men, who still haven't really stopped for a breather, and they could truffle off in pursuit of the Amalekites. 
Humanly speaking, this is silly. Humanly speaking, this is not a, a, the course of action that you take. They're exhausted, they haven't eaten, the Amalekites have all their food, the Amalekites presumably have a bigger group of people, the Amalekites have rested, they haven't been marching non-stop for three days. But David and his smaller group of people, exhausted, take off after them, trusting in the promises of God. And this is more proof of God's strength. But for some, the, the fatigue was simply too much. Now, this is not indicative of a lack of faith of these 200 men who, when they reached the Brook Basor, just couldn't cross over it. Let's not assign wrong where the text doesn't. David's response later on seems to indicate this is simple exhaustion and nothing else going on here. So 200 men could not cross over the, the Brook Basor. They're exhausted. David and four, 400 others keep going on. And they, they find an Egyptian fella who presumably figures out pretty quickly why this group of people are following the footsteps of the troop that he once belonged to. And probably out to get them. So they, they give this guy a little bit of food, a little bit of drink. They let him eat and drink first. And, and this Egyptian explains to them that, that he had been with the Amalekites as a servant. He, he was basically a slave to one of the Amalekites. And he'd gotten sick, so they'd left him behind. So they have this little chat after the Egyptians eaten and drunk. And the Egyptian explains that, you know, I, I have been part of this group of people. We have done some stuff around here. Did I tell you we burned Ziklag? He, he tells David what's happened. And he also says to David, if you, if you promise to me, by your God that you'll let me live and you don't give me back into the hands of my master either, I'll guide you to the rest of the troops. So, so off they go. And we, we, we see this scene from verse 16. The Amalekites spread out over the land, eating, drinking, dancing because of the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. They were feeling pretty safe at that point in time. Now, when we were younger, we used to play, have a ping pong table in the garage. If one of us made a shot that went out, we'd tell our brothers that we were just lulling them into a false sense of security. It was bluffing, but these guys are actually in that false sense of security, aren't they? Eating, drinking, dancing. They're not really paying much attention to their defences. They're partying hard. Why were they partying hard? Because they had the plunder. They were happy, they were content, they rejoiced with just the plunder. Now that attitude of being satisfied with what you have in verse 16 rears its head later on for some of the Israelites as an important problem that David needs to deal with. Because it's not just the Amalekites who have this attitude in this chapter. So as they're partying, David and his men, they attacked and they, they took them all out, we read. If you look at verse 17, it's interesting. Not a man of them escaped oh, except for 400 who rode away on camels. Now we might think, well, that's more than just no one escaping. That's 400 people with camels escaping. But what's significant about that is that it's very unlikely that a camel would have been a Hebrew possession. 
Incredibly unlikely that a camel would have been a Hebrew possession at this point in time. So these 400 men who seem to escape with the skin on their backs and these camels are not taking with them anything that had belonged to the Hebrews. It's a subtle point that the author's making there. They took off with the camels, nothing else. God's word was true. David and his men had overtaken the Amalekites. David and his men won this battle. David and his men reclaimed everything that had been taken. Everything taken was now restored. Now, while Job gets back twice as much at the end of that book, there's a Job-like element to God's working here, isn't there? This restoration of what was lost. We've seen the low. We've seen the restoration. But the chapter doesn't end there. We're only two-thirds through. And things take... They, they take a bit of a curveball when you get to verses 21 and 22. In these verses, David and his 400 men are reunited with the 200 who had been just so exhausted they couldn't keep on. And where I said the attitude of the Amalekites in verse 16, just finding contentment in stuff is an issue for the Israelites, this is where it comes up. Sadly, some of the Hebrew men, they follow the the same attitude of the Amalekites who have raided and destroyed and stolen wives and children and sons. This is not a fitting attitude to belong in God's people. They show no love for anything other than their hip pocket. Their attitude is simply disgusting. Some wicked and evil men who have been among the 400 who went with David Say to David when they reunite with the exhausted 200, let's make a little deal. We'll give these guys, these 200 men back, we'll give them their wives and their children and their sons. That's fair. That's right. That's proper. We'll keep the rest. We will take the rest for ourselves. It's disgusting. It is disgusting and it's a trap that we face today too, one that we pray to God continually that we will not fall into. We know how easy it is to be content with things, not God. God has just allowed this small group of Hebrew men who were completely exhausted after three days of marching to chase, not meander, not slowly follow after, but chase an active energy-burning exercise, chase these Amalekites to fight them and win. They had no chance of winning without God strengthening them. We see here God has not just strengthened David, he has strengthened all of those men who went with him to accomplish this. Rather than say, what a wonderful God we have, they say, our contentment is in stuff. We like the stuff. We'll do the barest minimum of looking like we care for our brothers and sisters by saying, let them have their wives and their children and their sons back. But we want the stuff and we know we come up against this attitude. We see it in the world around us and sometimes we too are tempted by this, which is why we keep 1 Corinthians 10.13, which we saw last week, so firmly in our heads. 
why we must pray that God will provide escape from temptation. David has this this fractious bunch of people to deal with. They wanted to stone him in verse 6. They don't want to give things to their neighbours now in verses 21 and 22. It's a really difficult situation. How will this be dealt with? In the last few chapters, David's one wise decision is returning to, to seeking God's counsel. Previously, he's been going it alone and it hasn't really worked out for him. How will he deal with it? Godly wisdom is how he deals with it. Now, David is he's not going solo anymore. Now, as we, as we saw in the children's talk, he, he sins again greatly, which isn't a surprise to us. But at this point in time, he is trusting God. He is trusting God. And we see through the rest of the chapters, we see Saul's fall happening in the chapters surrounding this. We see David's rise really taking off in chapter 30. God has lifted David up out of that low. He is bringing David to a point of exercising leadership like we've only seen in glimpses of from him before. And as Saul is, is exiting the narrative, this is exactly what God's people need. This is exactly what they need. So we focus this morning on the gracious rise of David. And keep in mind as we as we look at the finish of this chapter, that David is not just dealing with some malcontents. God is showing us through this. While, yeah, David is dealing with malcontents, God is showing us a bigger kingdom focus through this chapter. And David handles these malcontents. Now, what, what, we, what he does, what, what he decides to do, becomes a statute we read in verse 25 for, for all of Israel. There's wonderful wisdom to it. And part of it is that David points these people to God. My brethren, you shall not do so with what the Lord has given us. Straight away. You didn't actually get this for yourself. God has given this to us. Let's stop and think about him and how we deal with this. Just as everything on the face of the earth belongs to God, let's stop and think about God in our management of those things that God blesses us with, that God gives to us. He reminds the people, God allowed you to have this victory. And if God allowed you to have the victory, you have no right to be greedy with what he has given you. These people, as I've said, they're not rejoicing in God's blessings. Again, exhausted, in no condition to fight, but God allowed them the victory. Their joy and contentment is in reclaimed plunder. So how does David deal with it? It was wise to become statue for Israel. Read that in verse 25. How does David deal with it? David's wisdom here addresses both those who are spiritually discerning by bringing attention back to God as well as challenging those who are not spiritually discerning by reminding them of God and his presence and his work in all things, as well as dealing with the immediate wicked attitude 
What David says is anyone who is left behind to guard the supplies should have an equal share in whatever plunder is taken in battle. That is an incredibly wise ruling. You go back to chapter 25 of 1 Samuel. David received an insult from Abigail's husband, now his, his wife. And David receives this insult from Abigail's husband and he takes 400 men off to attack Nabal while he leaves 200 behind with the supplies. It is incredibly likely that some of these wicked men saying, let's not give anything to these guys over here, had been part of that 200 left with the supplies in chapter 25. And it's incredibly likely that they would have been left with supplies in future as well. This actually allows these guys to receive goods in future, even if they get that boring, less action-filled role of just guarding the supplies. We see an incredible wisdom from David here. And what makes this striking, as I've said, is that David has, has strayed from God's wisdom for a while leading up to this. As soon as he turns back to God, we see evidences of true leadership shining through again. This is not possible without God. This is not just David's clevers. This is God. This is God blessing David and through David his people. So he deals with these malcontents in accordance with the wisdom that God gave him. And then in verses 26 to 30, perhaps it's anticlimactic reading names of different places. David does something which affirms to Israel that he is a leader. Now, David is not sticking his hand up here and saying, get rid of Saul, vote one David. He's not doing that here. But remember, Samuel's gone. Saul is about to die. Israel need a godly leader. David is stepping up. David is reconnecting with his people, with God's people. David has been lifted up by God, not only from that huge low around verses 5 and 6, but God is restoring his relationship with the people here. See, the land that David gives to the people of Judah, he's not playing favourites with the people. The land he gives them was land promised to them at the beginning of the conquest. So he sends it to them. Yes, he sends it to his friends, but it's pretty understandable that he would have friends in his own tribe, isn't it? He sends them land. He gives them land. He gives them gifts. God is using David here to bless Israel, specifically here through the tribe of Judah. Israel needed a new leader who is godly, and David is beginning to model here in an incredible way that he really is the guy who could be that for God's people. He is a man after God's own heart, and he stands in incredible contrast to Saul, who refused to turn to God in chapter 28. And he stands in incredible contrast to the people who were just out for selfish gain earlier. And David has reasoned wisely. David has reasoned well. David has been gracious in all of his, being, all of his doing in this chapter. And this is an incredible example for us today. Because we will come across people who promote wicked, evil, ungodly ideas. We will come across people, sadly even within the church, 
who promote ideas such as abortion or same-sex marriage. We see that. We are confronted by that. It's easy to be offended by these people and to immediately shout and scream and drown out their arguments because we know what's best. And we do know what's best if we look at God's word. God's word tells us what is true, what is right and what is proper. David does not give ground to the ungodly in his discussions here. But he does act in a way, he does reason with these people in a way where, where he cannot be criticised for it. His words and actions cannot be criticised. He spoke and acted in grace. He was gracious in his dealing with his disagreement with those who are wicked. He was gracious in that he held out the truths of God. He was gracious in caring for those who simply had been too exhausted to continue any further. We are Everton Park Presbyterian Reformed Church. Any church who holds to Reformed theology, there are five core things we believe, one of them being that we are saved by grace through faith, not from works. And if we believe that we have been saved by grace, which we do, then it stands to reason that we should and we must act in grace too. As I've said a whole heap of times, grace is not cheap. Grace means that where sin is present, we take a stand for what is right and proper and holy, just as David does here. And should we fall into sin, and one of our brothers or sisters or reading God's word spurs something, stirs something up within us that, that convicts us of that, we shouldn't be defensive about that. We should be thankful because grace allows us to even confront our shortcomings because our identity isn't in who we think we are. Our identity is in Christ. Perhaps we do at times get distracted by the modern day spoils that we see in our lives that we encounter. Whether that's Goals that we have that we achieve, sometimes good goals, whether that be, be marriage, whether that be graduating university, whether it be jobs, promotions, having children, houses, cars, musical instruments, whatever it might be. Perhaps we've been so distracted by them and focus on gaining more of them that we need someone to call us out for those things. When that happens, we should thank God that he has put people in our lives like this. And if you... Do some of the calling out. Take notes from David in verses 22 to 25. Point people not to your wisdom, point people to God. Has to be the starting point. Speak in a way that shows you have actually listened to what the people are saying. David responds to the express argument put forward there. Speak kindly. Speak graciously. And know that in doing this, it doesn't mean that we ever take even a half step back from the truth. What we see here in David's rise is a need to be gracious. What we see in David's rise in this chapter is a need to find our strength not in books or articles or possessions or, or YouTube clips that prove our point. Find your strength in God. It is God's grace and God's grace alone 
that mended David in his brokenness. It is God's grace and God's grace alone that mended us in our brokenness and brought us to repentance of sin. By his grace, God will equip us for even the hardest of situations that we might find ourselves in, just like David in this chapter. Pray that God would fill us with his grace. Pray that we might be gracious to others. And pray, pray hard that we will always find our strength in God alone. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this passage where we see such wonderful things about your dealings with people. We thank you, O God, that we are the recipients of your grace and we pray that we would continually draw near to you. Keep us from those temptations, that those little voices in our head that tell us that we can figure this out. May we never fall into that trap. May we never think that we have enough that we don't need you. May we realise our need for you all the time. And we pray, O God, that you would use us just like you used David in this chapter, perhaps on a smaller scale, but may we be used for your glory. And we ask this in his name. Amen.